0: What up, what up, it's American Morgan. Welcome to the podcast. I am super excited about today's episode. I became inspired today to write a 10 page essay about the 1960s. I could not resist. I was so hyped about it today. Really, yesterday, it just kind of struck me suddenly and then I ended up watching this little documentary and I don't know, I was like, this could be a great episode, a great history lesson. And in regards to the 1960s in general, I've just had all this information stored up in my brain for a while now and I feel like it was healthy for me to just ride it all out. I don't know and to just process all of it and to kind of form a little bit of a like a cohesive rhythm to it and yeah i took a class on the 1960s back in college and it was hugely impactful on me i don't know it just made the biggest impression on me uh this is around the time where i was becoming so enthralled in american history and was just loving everything that i could get but was really taken by surprise about how much i well one did not know about the 1960s and some of these really vital pieces of our history especially our modern American history but just by how much I would love it and um I find it so fascinating so I hope that you will too. Now before we get started I want to mention a few things because some of this information is just from my memory um again like just the the impression that that class made on me about the 1960s um so some of it was just These are just pieces taken from what I remember from the lectures and essays that I wrote and stuff like that. Um, But also I did have to do some digging for certain specific dates or to remember little things and details about some stuff. Um, Crash Course on YouTube does an amazing job explaining different things. So I watched like some videos about the 1960s specifically about the cold war. Um, Yeah, they've got a lot of great resources. And if you're just looking for some fun things to watch, I also like looked up some stuff on the History Channel. Um, There's like a Encyclopedia Britannica website or something. Whatever, I was like Googling some stuff too. But as far as like a video, if you want some good resources, I recommend the Crash Course stuff on YouTube. I think I even listened to like a Khan Academy video. Anyways, for something a little bit more entertaining- those are entertaining, but you know what I mean. There is a Netflix documentary called Bobby Kennedy Bobby Kennedy for President. I'm getting so excited. (laughs) Bobby Kennedy for President. I've watched that thing so many times. Um, that can show you so much about the Kennedy administration, like JFK. Bobby Kennedy was his brother, so the the series specifically focuses on his run for president, but it shows you stuff about the civil rights movement, um, some really key pieces about the decade of the 1960s, specifically the year of 1968, which we're going to talk about. There's also the Netflix... Docu-drama, I don't know what those are called, but it's called The Trial of the Chicago 7. That is a great depiction of what happened at the Democratic National Convention the summer of 1968, which we're going to talk about. CNN at one point did a docu-series about the decades. I don't know if you can watch that anywhere now. I have struggled to find it anywhere. You might have to buy it. But they did like the 50s, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. It was so good. I really recommend that as well if you can find it. My gosh. Um, Yesterday, I watched the four-episode series called 1968 because (laughs) we're going to get to this year. It's crazy. Um, That was great. Highly recommend. That's on HBO Max right now. Um, yeah, you could also watch The Hidden Figures on Disney+, Plus. that movie, amazing, and that kind of gives you a sense about the space race, which we're gonna talk about. There's all of these fun resources of just entertaining movies or documentaries or little series, and yeah, you can just geek out hard like I've done. Um, yeah, so highly recommend all those things. Okay, now we're gonna get into this a little bit here. I feel like to understand the 1960s, you need to understand, I think, three pretty key things. We're talking about much more than three things, but to really understand the 60s, you need to understand the Vietnam War, the civil rights movement, those two things, they are like the background of what happened politically and culturally these two things primarily were the essence of just the tension, the division in the country. There was just so much wrapped up in these two things that it kind of coded everything else. Okay. The third thing that I think is super important is to understand the baby boomer generation, this massive population of young people that energized all the different movements and led the country into this more progressive direction. I think it's fascinating. So, we're going to get into that, of course. Um, it's also important to talk about the 1950s, I think, and what happened after World War II, what the atmosphere of America was like that set the stage for the 60s. So we're going to touch on that a little bit at the beginning, okay? Now, in my opinion, the last few years that we are living in right now have felt similar to the 1960s, and 2020 was particularly reminiscent of the infamous year of 1968 that we're going to talk about. So I think if you understand the dynamic of this decade of 1960s, you'll gain more perspective about the cultural and political moment America finds itself. America finds itself in today, I think. There's going to be so much stuff that we could talk about, okay? This one episode will not do it justice. I, again, took that whole semester class. I think you could break each of these topics down into their own semester classes at a college, okay? So, it's just an overview, all right? But I want you to walk away from this knowing a lot more than you did before. So, let's get into it. Let's set it all up. Alright, so talking about the transition from the 50s to the 60s. After World War II and the horrors of Nazi persecution against the Jews and the takeover of Europe country by country, the US went into this sort of era of being really conservative and safe. People were afraid of nuclear war, of communism, radical politics. They wanted to feel safe, more or less. So the culture became pretty bland Generally speaking, I mean, there were still rock and roll, Elvis Presley types, the start of the civil rights movement that we come to know in the 60s. But in general, the 50s is where you see like the expansion of suburbs and advertisements for small kitchen appliances, um, all the cliches about apple pie and baseball and stuff. Everyone was conforming to this very vanilla, predictable, safe way of living. Again, generally speaking but it was the overall environment. Now imagine soldiers coming home from the war in Europe, okay, in the late 40s after World War II ended and basically you see all these couples start having babies like crazy. Okay, husband and wives are back together. The war was great for the economy, we're feeling good. People wanna start seeing their families grow. And these are the kids that are growing up in that very plain, bland, safe America of the 1950s, okay? So we're talking about the baby boomer generation. These are those kids growing up in the 50s. Americans, (laughs) this is so crazy. Americans were having so many kids that at one point, our population surpassed that of India's whatever India's was at that time okay this massive group of children growing up in the cookie cutter time of the 1960s this is that decade of the 50s where there would be they're growing up in the 50s right and then it ends up being the massive group of young adults going to college in the 60s After this suffocating-type childhood in the era of post-World War II, anti-communism, afraid of nuclear war, they were ready to spread their wings at a liberal university and challenge all the ways of thinking, and protest, and march, and do drugs, and listen to rock and roll. And they influenced the culture. So does that make sense? The children of the 50s who kind of grew up in that stifling environment, turn into the young adults of the 1960s and everything we're about to talk about is fueled by this group. Also by a bunch of adults, but like just kind of consider this undercurrent of everything going on. Massive group of young people, okay? So... To match this very young, very large portion of the population, in 1960, America elected its youngest president, John F. Kennedy. JFK was 43 when he was sworn into office and was replacing, ironically, the oldest president elected at that point, who was Dwight Eisenhower, who really defined that decade before in the 50s. So that's kind of another example of the country... Moving from an old conservative way of thinking, generally speaking, to a younger, more progressive direction. So we need to highlight uh, a moment back when Kennedy was a candidate, okay? So during the 1960 election, there was a debate between John Kennedy and the Republican candidate at that time, Richard Nixon. Yes, he becomes president later on. This was the very first televised debate ever. And it's so normal nowadays, right? This is the very first one in the election of 1960, JFK, Richard Nixon, which was really important to use a television for this specific race in particular too. And here's why. Kennedy was young, attractive, confident in front of the camera, and Nixon was basically the opposite. And it showed big time. Poll numbers actually showed that most people listening to the debate on the radio thought that Nixon won the debate. Most people watching on TV said Kennedy won hands down. Kennedy was smooth, articulate, charming. Nixon was literally sweating profusely underneath the lights after insisting on wearing makeup. He struggled to get his words out. He looked mean in comparison to the suave Kennedy. This debate really influenced the state of the race. And for the first time in politics image mattered. Presence in front of the camera actually mattered. And that wasn't really a thing before. The JFK administration became known as Camelot. Maybe you've heard that term before. It was glamour and intrigue. Um, the first lady, Jackie Kennedy, she became this sort of style icon. The family in general was just photogenic and dreamy. It had like this fairy tale image. But there are a couple of important geopolitical events that happened during JFK's short presidency of just a few years. We're going to talk about those things. The United States was still in the Cold War. Now the Cold War is a whole different topic. It spanned from 1945 to 1990. So we're going to be touching on it a little bit. It's also going to kind of add context to the 1960s, but you could do a whole other episode just on the Cold War, okay? Uh, It wasn't a war in the traditional sense with like boots on the ground and battles, but more of an ideological war. The US and the Soviet Union, now known as Russia, were kind of competing to spread their political ideologies around the world. The US pushed democracy, capitalism, and the Soviets pushed communism, which as you may know, America notoriously hates, especially during this time. And it was afraid of communism, like terrified. Overall, it was this ideological war between the Western world and the Eastern. So within the context of the Cold War going on, we have the two main geopolitical events that I want to talk about during JFK's administration. One, the Bay of Pigs, and two, the Cuban Missile Crisis. All right, so let's start with the Bay of Pigs. It happens first. This is just a few months into the JFK presidency. Cuba had a new leader of this revolution against the administration that was intact at the time. The leader of this revolution, Fidel Castro, maybe you've heard his name. Now, the understanding was that Cubans didn't like him. Um, There were people fleeing the country, Um, a lot of Cuban immigrants to Florida. Fidel, Fidel Castro was identifying with communist policies. That was sort of the understanding as well. And remember, America hates communism, afraid of communism. Um, So the U.S. decides to try to take him out, uh, but they want to do it without letting on that it was them. They want to do like a secret mission. CIA gets involved to assassinate Fidel Castro. They want to remove this risk of Cuba becoming a communist nation. So the CIA basically backs this group of Cuban exiles so that it would look like a Cuban anti-revolution group, basically, to invade the shores of Cuba and take Fidel Castro out. Now, word gets around that this is happening. The Cubans find out that an invasion is likely to happen in the near future. So the surprise was ruined, essentially. Um, The squad of Cuban exiles backed by the CIA and the U.S. military invade the Bay of Pigs. And it did not go well. It wasn't planned well. Some died. Most were captured. Fidel Castro walked away fine. It was a total failure. It backfired. Now, the Cuban Missile Crisis. With all the tensions rising in the Cold War between the US and the Soviet Union, US missiles are placed in the country of Turkey, which if you look at a map, that's very close to the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union and Khrushchev, the leader over there, decides to put their own missiles in Cuba, just south of Florida. The White House finds out and decides to send US ships over to Cuba to the waters to form a blockade and prevent more Soviet missiles and supplies. Now, Soviets obviously see this as an act of aggression. The tension keeps building. The Soviets continue prepping the missiles. The U.S. threatens to invade. A U.S. spy plane is shot down by a Soviet missile. Then a nuclear-armed Soviet marine uh, submarine that m- they misinterpret a move by the U.S. and think that a war has begun. They almost launched their own nuclear missile but thankfully one commanding officer who was on board that submarine advised to wait. But basically these tensions just keep rising, okay? And so for the first time in US history, the military set itself to DEFCON 2. There's 54321. So 1 is we are at nuclear war, like nuclear missiles are flying through the air right now. We were at DEFCON 2. <laughs> you basically have these two countries with their fingers on their own big red buttons ready to launch nuclear missiles. Uh, just waiting for one another to blink. Now, uh, JFK's brother Bobby Kennedy who was the attorneys general at the time comes up with a compromise with the Soviet ambassador and basically they reach this deal that the US would remove their missiles from Turkey and promise not to invade Cuba if the Soviets remove their missiles from Cuba. One little mistake or a misinterpretation or like a small military act it could have killed millions of people so that's the Cuban Missile Crisis. These these two events, the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Bay of Pigs, really define Kennedy's short presidency. And then, of course, we can move into the assassination. You probably know things about the Kennedy assassination, so we're not going to get into it too much. But um, we will say uh, Kennedy, he was president for almost three years when he was shot and killed. Uh, as he rode through Dallas in this motorcade in front of a bunch of American citizens waving at him as he passed by. And as he was sitting next to his wife, it was just awful. And um, again, yeah, we're not going to get into too much detail about it and the conspiracy theories and all of that. But specifically, I want you um, to just remind yourself. like, Don't let yourself glaze over how terrible that actually was. It's a very infamous day and JFK himself can easily become this fictional character but imagine what it would have been like to experience the leader of your country getting murdered in public like that oh and we should mention before we get too far how crazy it is that before lee harvey oswald could be put on trial for the murder of the president because they did catch him and had him in custody. Someone shot and killed him, which leads to even more conspiracy theories than before. It's just crazy um also I will say that back in high school this is before I even really loved American history like I just didn't really care about it at the time um but we did a mock trial of the Kennedy assassination and I got to play Jackie Kennedy and it was like this very um like I made myself cry and I did this whole performance and a teacher came up to me later and said like it was really great acting and stuff it was it was super cool um okay so then you have the quick transfer I just had to mention that Um, Do you remember, we talked about this recently on Instagram, the quick transfer of power that happens on Air Force One. Vice President Lyndon Johnson quickly ascends to the office of the presidency. They have to transfer the power to the vice president, who's number two in line, of course, aboard Air Force One. It's so momentous. This is right after Kennedy is announced dead. So momentous and somber. And really something to think about, too. I mean, you have Jackie Kennedy, who was a widow as of an hour and a half before that, standing next to LBJ with Kennedy's blood on her dress. She looks like she's still in shock in the photo of them on the plane. And LBJ has his hand on the Bible, the other hand raised, and he takes the oath of office on the president's airplane. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. And so now we're going to kind of switch into... President Johnson and his administration because he was president you know for that middle whole good chunk of the 60s but before we get into his highlights I think that we should talk about the Vietnam War. All right so the Vietnam War I feel like this could have been its own episode but I'm going to try to condense it into this smaller chunk okay Um, because honestly, if you've never really took the time to like sit down and learn what the Vietnam war was about, I don't know. You just, you might have no idea. Just kind of one of those random wars. Like we know a little bit about world war two, you know, but I mean, Vietnam is a little bit more abstract. Um, after world war two, Americans were afraid of communism, right? We talked about in the fifties that really defined that generation. Also, hence the Korean war, the cold war. Vietnam at the time was a colony of France, and a man named Ho Chi Minh was leading a revolution to gain independence from France. And unfortunately, he was doing that by way of trying to establish a communist dictatorship in Vietnam. (laughs) Okay, so the U.S. was fiercely against communism and worried that if Vietnam fell to communism, the rest of Southeast Asia would too. You already had China, you already had Korea, so there was this domino effect that the U.S. was worried about, that the rest of Southeast Asia would also turn uh, to be communist. Um, There was also just this fear in general that Soviet influence would just kind of spread, um, sort of like Germany and the Nazis did throughout Europe in World War II. So America threw its support behind the southern faction of Vietnam. Vietnam at the time was kind of split. The northern half was pushing for this communist revolution and independence, But we threw our support behind uh, the southern faction who were against the communist uprising. And finally, in the early 60s, the U.S. became really involved by having troops go in. And this is under JFK. Now, major escalation and the Americanization of the war happened under Lyndon Johnson. Towards 1965, bombing increased, it was messy, civilians were dying like crazy, innocent people were dying, and the war was just dragging on. Vietnam caused many Americans to distrust their government, there was lies and misrepresentation. Uh, The Johnson administration wasn't very candid or transparent there for a while about what all was going down over on the other side of the world and how much destruction was actually taking place. More bombs were dropped on North and South Vietnam than all of the bombs used in World War II. The fighting style was very different than World War II, but early on, it was the same generals advising the military. The same old guys that you had from World War II were the same ones there for a bit who were trying to make the decisions for Vietnam. And it was just totally different. The landscape was different. The fighting style was different. The U.S. was wildly unprepared for what awaited them in the Vietnamese jungle. This is also the first war brought into American living rooms, TV, during the 1960s was extremely important it influenced America's attitudes towards the war reporters went to find out the truth and record all that was going on and now it was there for everyone to see that wasn't the case in World War II you know you were just kind of being just kind of taking whatever you were given but now with Vietnam the reporters were actually there in real time and people could not avoid the reality of it young men were drafted and if you were a student you got a pass so generally speaking the troops were from the lower class who could not afford college the u.s thought that it could defeat the northern vietnamese regime easily we were world war champs but the vietnamese were scrappy and knew the land and their commitment to the fight was just stronger most americans including the soldiers didn't even know why we were there the vietnamese also, uh, there's a comparison made to them and the American soldiers during the Revolutionary War. Whenever the British came over to the colonies, they didn't know the uh, the colonies' land. And at the time, the American Revolutionary soldiers were just kind of scrappy and were they were willing to do whatever it took to get their independence. That's how the Vietnam soldiers were. So the Vietnamese were fighting for their country. It wasn't necessarily just about communism. They were tough uh, and they just, they knew how to fight in their land. They knew it better, Uh, but they'd be hiding in the bushes. They'd be using tactics that we had never seen before. And many innocent civilians were killed. Uh, The U.S. just dragged it on. And eventually it was the first time that we would lose a war. The U.S. did not leave Vietnam until 1973, so not even in the 60s. And the Vietnam War did not officially end until two years later, 1975, after losing anywhere from three to four million Vietnamese lives so that's vietnam in a nutshell that was a five minute summary of the vietnam war but there's just so much to it and it's gonna keep coming up as we continue to talk about the 60s because again it was just the background of so much that was happening culturally and politically So now we can get into a couple highlights about Lyndon Johnson. The main things that I want you to know, there's like three main things. One, he was a domineering Texan who used aggressive strong-arming when working with colleagues. And for example, he'd sometimes have his aides join him in the bathroom while he was doing his business to save time. That was just kind of his personality. Like that gives you a little bit of a look at his personality. Number two, he was a political genius when it came to passing legislation. He was sort of able to ride on the misfortune of Kennedy's assassination because there was this sense of like, oh, President Kennedy wanted to get this bill passed or he wanted this specific agenda, but unfortunately he was taken from us too quickly. He never got the chance. Let's do it in his honor. There was kind of that uh, environment sort of in the beginning years of the Johnson administration, but also... LBJ just knew the workings of Congress so well and was good at getting what he wanted and it led to a bunch of great accomplishments like the two programs medicaid and medicare he passed a major tax cut there was the clean air act the civil rights act of 1964 which we'll talk about the voting rights act which we'll talk about he signs the economic opportunity act which created the office of economic opportunity and beginning the war on poverty his legislative agenda was known as the great society kind of like franklin roosevelt's new deal after the great depression And side note, President Johnson actually really looked up to and loved FDR. So yeah, there was just so much he was able to get done during that time. And remember, he finished out JFK's term. And so in 1964, he was elected president in his own right and technically could have served two four-year terms in addition to the rest of Kennedy's term that he finished out but he did not serve two full terms afterwards and that brings me to my next point the third thing that you should know about LBJ is that the vietnam war devastated him it was under president johnson that the war in vietnam really escalated and became americanized that term that we used earlier where we really took the reins of, where we took the reins of a horse that did not belong to us There's stories of Johnson waking up throughout the night, making calls to generals and getting status updates and reports about the soldiers. And one written account describes him stepping onto the plane, where a bunch of new draftees were being sent to the war. Johnson thanks them and expresses his remorse with tears in his eyes, and it was this moving moment and characterized his feelings towards the war. And it was kind of a more personal side to it that not a lot of people saw. He inherited the war in Vietnam and he did make a lot of the defining decisions that shaped the war and we could talk all day about how U.S. pride and arrogance and refusal to admit weakness or defeat caused more lives to be lost and a longer war in general. But LBJ specifically was devastated by the weight of all of it so much so that he decided not to run for a second term. I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal partisan causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office, the presidency of your country. Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Okay so this is a huge deal. I mean this has happened before there were like seven other presidents who chose not to run for re-election but he was the only one that he's he's the only one that's done it since Harry Truman in 1952. But basically what he's saying there, he didn't want to worry about campaigning and the political scene when there was this huge problem that was taking a toll on him, taking a toll on the country. He was worried about it and trying to fix it. So he didn't feel like it was uh, worth his time or, you know, just didn't want to run for a second term, (laughs) whether it was just because he was like so stressed out about it and just couldn't bear another four years that was obviously part of it but also just didn't want to take his attention away from it at least that's how he explained it to the american people there that was an address to the country on tv he's yeah one of the only presidents to do that in modern history um it's very rare for a president not to seek another four years if it's available to them but the realities of war the decimation of vietnam And the deaths of innocent lives and young American soldiers stripped LBJ of that desire to keep the office. Now, as we get closer to the infamous year of 1968, which is also the election year that Johnson chose not to participate in. Before we get to all of that, we should talk about some of the different movements that define this era. Okay, so one of the more prominent efforts was the anti-war movement fueled by the horrifying images and reports of the the Vietnam War that were suddenly in the face of everyday Americans. It should be noted that most Americans supported the war throughout most of the 60s and didn't really begin disputing it till the late 60s, early 70s. But nonetheless, the anti-war movement carried by that young baby boomer generation gained national attention and helped steer the narrative. We should also pause to recognize the group known as Yippies. Kind of like political hippies. Uh, Yippies were members of the political group Youth International Party that was famous for being countercultural, pretty radical, and all about free speech and ending the war in Vietnam. There was the Women's Movement, which was huge and led to the Equal Pay Act of 1963 the student movement. There's this example of um, Columbia University in New York City where the students just kind of took over campus um, and like uh, they they filled the rooms and like professors were booted out and like this huge kind of takeover of the campus. If you have time to look up that, you should. There was a movement for gay rights and generally so many different pushes to expand human rights. Arguably the most impactful, most notable movement was, of course, the civil rights movement, which technically began in the 50s. Rosa Parks' protest on the bus was 1955. The Montgomery bus boycott was 1955 to 1956. This is where African Americans refused to ride the city buses, and it led the Supreme Court ordering Montgomery to integrate its bus system. This is also in the 50s, the first time Martin Luther King Jr., a young pastor, steps onto the scene. He was one of the leaders of the boycott. So that was the 1950s. The 1960s is really when things take off in the civil rights movement. In the early 60s, we see sit-ins throughout southern states where black people would sit at the whites-only lunch counters and silently protest. They were often harassed, beaten, and ridiculed. We see Freedom Riders who protested segregated bus terminals and attempted to use white restrooms and lunch counters. The Freedom Rides experienced horrific violence from white protesters and attracted national attention and... Again, we need to emphasize the importance of television during this time. People could not avoid the images that they were seeing on TV. Maybe you've heard of Governor George Wallace preventing Black students from registering at the University of Alabama until Kennedy sends the National Guard. 1963, the March on Washington, where a quarter of a million people advocate for jobs and freedom. Um, We should also say 1963 is really when JFK starts to care more about the civil rights movement, because before that, it just wasn't really on his mind. I mean, he was obviously preoccupied with that stuff going on with Cuba, but um, in general, it just wasn't something that he was super concerned about. So more national attention is gained. And then you have this march on Washington. This is where MLK gives his iconic, I have a dream speech. Later that same year, there's the bombing of an African-American church that kills four young girls, and this sparks protests and riots. And we see the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The law prevented employment discrimination due to race, color, sex, religion, or national origin, and it ended segregation in public places. It was huge. And the March on Washington helped spur that on. Then we see the civil rights leaders and protesters walk from Selma, Alabama, to Montgomery, the state capital. It took them almost three weeks because police blocked them and attacked them, and a court ruled in their favor to continue, so they finally make it to Montgomery. We see this lead directly to the signing of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which prevented the use of literacy tests as a voting requirement. Later Johnson signs the Fair Housing Act of 1968, providing equal housing opportunity, regardless of race, religion, or national origin. There were major accomplishments in the 60s for civil rights. There was also a lot of violence and division and details of different events that just we're not touching on right now, there's so much. The Black Panthers, Malcolm X, John Lewis, the NAACP. There's a story of Olympic sprinters who maybe you've seen. Um, they're raising their fist. One of them got first place. Another one got third, I'm pretty sure. So the gold and bronze medal. And they raised their fists during the singing of the national anthem they end up getting banned from all olympic activity and they knew that there was a risk of that happening but they chose to stand in solidarity with what was happening in the u.s but one of the darkest moments of the civil rights movement in this decade is the assassination of martin luther king jr which now brings us to the topic of the year 1968. this was the year that felt like the culmination point of everything going on. You had a very divisive presidential election. Johnson dropped out of the race. His VP was seeking the Democratic nomination, but kind of felt like a puppet for Lyndon Johnson. JFK's brother, Bobby Kennedy, uh, entered the race and was running on the advocacy for a variety of social issues and had a really good shot at becoming the second Kennedy president. 1968 was really significant, and the ramping up of the Vietnam War, the racial tension and violence was still very prevalent, and so much so that we saw the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in Memphis. The night before he was shot, he made a speech at a church that was known as the Mountaintop Speech. It's probably my favorite speech of his. I'm going to play a little clip of that. I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now Because I've been to the mountaintop Like anybody I would like to live A long life, longevity Has its place But I'm not concerned about that now I just want to do God's will me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. Okay, I will always be willing to play that speech on demand. I think it's just so moving. It's uh, insanely prophetic because, of course, the next day he was shot and killed. He did not make it to the promised land, quote-unquote, with them. Um, It's incredibly moving. I love all the different parallels between him and Moses. Um, But his murder sparked nationwide outrage, obviously. Um, and then fast forward, Robert Kennedy, the brother running for president, is shot and killed the night he wins the California primary. So two cultural, political leaders fighting for positive change in the country murdered a couple months apart from each other. This brings us to the chaotic, violent Democratic National Convention in Chicago that summer. This is what I referenced to the Netflix documentary, The Trial of the Chicago Seven. These are the uh, conventions that nominate a candidate for the party, so who will run for the November election. Inside the convention hall, you had crazy divisions among the party. One of the candidates, um, Bobby Kennedy, had just been killed. (laughs) There were passionate differences on what to do about the Vietnam War. People wondering if Vice President Hubert Humphrey would just be a Lyndon Johnson 2.0. Um, like, reporters and delegates were physically getting pushed around, the tensions were so high. And then outside the convention hall, you had what later became described as a police riot, remember the yippies? Well, they were protesting the war, government, basically everything, and they were generally chill and peaceful when the police came to run them out, beating them, and so on. The 1968 convention was marked by violence and division, and it was very on brand for that whole year. 1968 saw the Olympics held in Mexico City, which I referenced a second ago with the sprinters protesting, uh, but also student demonstrators outside were killed by the police. There were violent protests in Czechoslovakia and France that year. There was just so much unrest generally that year. Americans were mourning and waiting for the next bad thing. They didn't know what else to expect. The Republican candidate, Richard Nixon, was running in large part on a message of law and order, which resonated with many average Americans with everything that was going on. And he won the election that November. That's right. The sweaty guy from the first televised debate against JFK achieved one of the arguably greatest American political comebacks, and became president after LBJ. 1968 thankfully ended on a positive note, which brings us to the space race and a few final thoughts about the 60s. The space race is one of those Cold War era competitions between the US and the Soviet Union. Uh, But this fight, of course, centered around accomplishments in space exploration. Each side was trying to show how superior and advanced its own technology was. And it really became this patriotic competitive endeavor. It was also about geopolitical power, right? Whoever controlled space kind of had more influence, right? And it was this unknown, Feet that they wanted to try to get to first and in the late 50s the soviets had gotten the first satellite into earth's orbit the satellite known as sputnik nasa was created shortly after 1958 And so by the time we get into the 60s, 1961, the the Soviets got the first man into space, who then became the first man to orbit Earth. That was a huge blow to the U.S., right? A month later, the U.S. sent its first American into space, just not into orbit. Now, John F. Kennedy made the claim that the U.S. would land on the moon before the decade was over. I've got a little clip of that as well. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, yeah, so he says decade, like decade, um, but still, nonetheless, a point was made. He wanted, uh, he kind of commissioned the country to get us to the moon before the decade was over. So for the next few years, both countries continued researching and testing, and there were different setbacks. And in the final days of that infamous tumultuous year of 1968, NASA successfully launched Apollo 8, the first manned space mission to orbit the moon. So that was that... Hopeful, positive ending to the terrible year. You should Google the Earthrise photo from Apollo 8 if you can. Um, it's beautiful and moving. And then just seven months later, the Apollo 11 landed on the moon, and Neil Armstrong became the first person to walk on the moon's surface. And as JFK commissioned, but sadly did not get to witness, Americans made it to the moon before the 60s were over, 1969. <laughs> Now, to round out this discussion about the 1960s, I love music and I think it would be valuable to mention key artists who influenced uh, the culture and created music that influenced a generation. Of course, you had progressive rock that was so demanding in the way that it brought attention to political issues. I'm talking about Bob Dylan, The Beatles, Creedence Clearwater Revival. And then in general, you had the Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, the Beach Boys, still had some Elvis Presley in there. And then the massive impact of African American artists who were so bright and beautiful and charismatic. I'm talking about James Brown, Aretha Franklin, Marvin Gaye, Nina Simone, Sly and the Family Stone, Henry Belafonte, Sam Cooke, Ben E. King, Mahalia Jackson, Diana Ross and the Supremes. There's so many, this was such a great decade for music. And we also talked about the influence of television with reporters and the news broadcasting. You had Walter Cronkite, Mike Wallace. There were these iconic TV shows as well, like the Dick Van Dyke show, I Dream of Jeannie, Bewitched, Leave it to Beaver, The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And then movies, there was The Graduate, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and In the Heat of the Night, both of those were pretty uh, politically progressive, they were bringing attention to racial issues, and In the Heat of the Night won the Academy Award in 1968, which was super cool. There's Breakfast at Tiffany's, To Kill a Mockingbird, Funny Girl, Easy Rider. This decade saw directors and singers push the limits and call attention to injustice. It was such a vibrant time, it was so expressive. This decade is so fascinating to me. I could talk about the 1960s all day. These 10 years in American history were filled with turmoil and advancement, violence, but liberation, the breakdown of trust in institutions, and the empowerment of the marginalized. It's one of those eras that impacts the course of history. And if some of the stories felt familiar to stuff that we've experienced recently, I think it's because we're in another one of those defining eras. May we avoid the mistakes of the past that are easier to see now and spur one another on in love to fight for a good cause. I'm Morgan White and I approve this message.